Welcome to Voices in Leadership, live streamed worldwide from the Leadership Studio at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm Dean Michelle Williams. The goal of Voices is to highlight the experiences of leaders confronting major public health frontiers and to better understand effective leadership and how it can affect change. I hope you find this program engaging and informative. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome to our audience here in the studio and our viewers online around the globe. My name is Eric Anderson. I'm the director of Voices in Leadership. This series focuses on the lessons of effective leadership to create positive change in public health. And this event takes place in the Leadership Studio where the programs and related content have received over four million views to date and counting. Today, we host a discussion entitled Practical Ways to Confront Hyperpartisanship in Health with Professor Kim Leary and Governor Jay Nixon. In 2008, Jay Nixon was elected the 55th governor of Missouri with the highest margin of victory for a non-incumbent governor in 44 years. In 2012, he was re-elected, making him one of only three governors in Missouri to serve two full consecutive terms in office. Governor Nixon earned a national reputation as a fiscal conservative, fighting for Missouri's working families and stronger, safer communities. He took unprecedented action to end all forms of discrimination, protected the civil rights of women and minorities, and promoted equal opportunity for all. Under his leadership, the state made historic investments in helping Missourians with developmental disabilities lead healthier, safer, and more productive lives. His compassionate and effective leadership in the aftermath of a deadly tornado that struck Joplin in 2011 serves as a national model for disaster response. And as Attorney General, Nixon's lawsuit against Big Tobacco resulted in settlements worth billions of dollars. Before I turn this discussion over to our moderator, Professor Kim Leary, please join me as we welcome Governor Jay Nixon to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. Welcome, Governor. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You know, every headline, nearly every headline that we see reflects the hyper-partisan ecosystem that we're in right now. You're a Democrat, but you have served, uh, have, have an exemplary record in what has traditionally been a red state. Can you tell us some of the practical lessons, let's just get right into it, for being able to mitigate and work within that partisan ecosystem that we have right now. Yeah, I served the entire eight years as governor with two-thirds of the opposite party controlling both the House and the Senate. And one of the records I'm most proud of is I have a record of the most bills vetoed that I held a veto, sustained a veto, 279. Um, so I, I do think that they got they got over the over the dam a few times. I'm not saying I was undefeated, yeah. but the the point is that I think that you have to once again refocus into local. You have to have shared principles. You have to treat people with respect, uh, and you have to be knowing where you're going. I mean, I think sometimes these days there's so much tactical discussion, so much short-term discussion. I think we were able to thematically get folks headed in the right direction and understanding the politics of something and governing is something which you often had to have to accept more than less than what you expect. Uh, but going in the right direction was really extremely important. Okay. Take us into that uh, when you first arrived in office in uh, 2009, having won election in 2008. That was a very urgent time in our nation and also in Missouri. How did you orient yourself to determining where to go and beginning to build the kinds of coalitions that would be needed to make progress? Well, first of all, we didn't have any money. 
I mean, states uh, have balanced budgets. We don't get to print money. And so on the first day in office, I had to let go 800 employees and cut the budget by 200 million. By the time we were then 14 months into that, 15 months into that, we had downsized the state workforce by over 5,100 people and taken $1.5 billion out of the base budget. So to do that requires a lot of cooperation. And quite frankly, legislators are not good at cutting budgets. Nobody comes to a capital to lobby for a cut. <laughs> ever okay nobody hires a lobbyist to do that or even does it so so what we found was that the legislature was much more willing to appropriate money than we had money so I had to use a strong extraordinary power that Missouri governors have to restrict funds ended up that over that first term the legislature appropriated almost two and a half billion dollars more than we had money so I had to carve that budget myself when the money's not there as governor with the restriction authority you had to do it and I think being collaborative in that and explaining that at least behind closed doors so that uh, when they went out and and criticized me they did so in a professional and not a personal way. The other thing I did right after I got elected, I brought all the leadership of the legislature over and I said there's going to be three rules when you deal with Nixon. Um, they're not complicated. We're not going to yell and scream in meetings. If anybody wants to yell and scream, my office has a, has a nice porch out there. You can go out there and scream at the Missouri River. I don't care. Uh, number two, we're going to be honest with each other. Uh, this is a, this is a, and number three, if we are in here working on something uh, that's difficult and we're checking where folks are. If you share that information with the press before we all agree it should go, then you're going to get uh, put on Survivor Island. And one time I did have to leave the speaker out of the office for about three months and it was a glorious three months, I should know. <laughs> but um, I think setting down some basic human rules. And then the other thing I did was, was make sure that when I was in a legislator's district that I, I had them with me, regardless of party, regardless of whether they were far the measure we were talking about. I remember like yesterday going to an area in which a, a legislator had voted against a bill, but it was a good bill. I signed it. We go to the area. We're having a press event. We're talking about it. And I say, I want to thank the legislature for passing this bill, even though the member that was there voted against it. And you know, you would not have known from his comments that he voted against that bill. Um, so I think being willing to kind of pass pass some, some level of authority, some level of, of credit uh, for good things happening was important. But I, I do think a lot of personal relationships are important uh, in having a strong team around you. Mm -hmm. So it, it does sound like that informal authority, the trust that you built, the credibility was quite important along with some human rules of the game. Would that be fair to say? I, I, think, I think personal credibility is exceptionally important. Uh, duplicity is, a, is rampant in politics. Uh, and the edges of it. And I understand the language of politics uh, very well. I mean, people don't say yes and no that much. Um, but I do think that that level, people knew that if I said I was going to do something, I would do it. People knew if I promised to them or others that I would do something, I would do it. And I think it took a while for people to understand I really meant what I said uh, sometimes. But once we got to that point, um, I remember the chairman of appropriation of the Senate came down one time. He said, I just came from a caucus meeting. I tried to explain to them how it in, when, we, when we criticize you or yell at you, it doesn't bother you. It inspires you to stay in the position you're in. I, I'm trying to explain to these guys that they're motivating you the wrong way. Um, but, um, and, and being real competitive. I, I think it's, it's a competitive world out there, and I think people understood that, uh, that, that there were teeth behind my smile. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, there's times when you, the, you have to have friends, and not everybody's a friend, and you have to have people that, in, a, in a given moment. That's the other thing. If somebody's against you on one thing, 
I think far too many people say, well, they weren't with us on that deal, or they voted against this, or they weren't helpful there, or they criticized that, and then they break down communication with that person for the next one year, two year, three year, four year. Every vote's a different chance. Every issue's a new deal. I mean, I, I was a, uh, I, I was like a, a, a fundamentalist church on Sunday morning after a rough Saturday night. You can, you can come to me and get redemption. <laughs> So healthcare is an issue that increasingly reflects that hyperpartisan ecosystem that we were talking about. And yet you were extremely effective at being able to uh, work with multiple constituencies to uh, assemble a set of programs for mental health care, for those with developmental uh, disabilities, for uh, child health care. Could you tell us more about hyperpartisanship in healthcare in particular, and how you began to create the needed coalition. Right. Well, let's start with the failure, then we'll get to the, the okay. positive. The failure is we did not pass Medicaid expansion in Missouri, and that was and, and we should have $3 billion we're sending uh, to D.C. We're not getting it back. Partisanship is all that defeated that. It was the right thing to do. It was our tax dollars. Um, we made some, some, some good runs. So now that we got the failures out of the way, we can talk about all the great things I got accomplished. But um, I think that we really focus on an outside-in strategy. We work the districts, we work the communities, and let those communities then affect their legislative leaders. I'm a big believer elections matter and people, and there, there's nothing more scared of elections than politicians. Uh, and and if, you're, if you're working their people back in the district, it makes a significant difference. Let me give you one example of that. Uh, my mom was a, got her PhD in learning disabilities and she was real involved in, in testing of kids, especially kids on the autism spectrum disorder. So it's, it's an issue I've been involved in for years. So I wanted to pass uh, what we called an autism mandate, which would require um, insurance coverage to cover ABA treatment for kids with autism. Have to get them when they're very young, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and so into the first year as governor, we put a bill in and it didn't move very far, but I worked to get a vote in the state senate right before the end of the session. Uh, about four or five days left, and the bill passes the Senate like 28 to 6. Okay, I'm like, whoa, the insurance industry lobbying against it. It goes over to the House, and the Speaker kills the bill. Um, and so the choice then was whether to go to his home area, which happened to be Joplin, and lambast him for killing the bill, or whether to try to co-opt him. And we were able to discover that he had a nephew that was on the spectrum and others like that. So we went down after the session was over and, and did a meeting at the autism center down there uh, with the speaker. Long story being short, instead of being negative, we were positive. That bill was passed in the first six weeks of the next session. And this morning in Missouri, 1.6 million people are covered by that insurance mandate with less than one-tenth of one percent increase in insurance rates. And more importantly, almost 4,000 kids are getting that treatment paid for because of that mandate each and every year. Mm -hmm. It sounds like one of the important lessons that you're underscoring for us is that behind the issue and behind the person is also a story, and it's helpful when you know that story. Yeah, and, and as I've said to other folks, especially with term limits, you find more and more that the legislators don't sometimes, these terms turn over so fast. I mean, we've got eight-year term limits, which really means two, four, six years before they're running for something else. They don't know their districts as well. So consequently, the meetings I had with legislators were most productive back in their set, back in their districts. Uh, they were mo that once you get to the Capitol, uh, it's like Disneyland on the Missouri. You know, everybody—it's a senior trip for some of them. Um, you got to get back in there with their with their constituents and talk about those issues in a real way, so that then when they get in their car, the pickup truck, and head to the Capitol, they're thinking about what the constituents they serve are thinking about it, as opposed to what the political deals are in Jeff City. Mm -hmm. 
You mentioned Joplin, and in 2011, your state was hit with a devastating tornado. Uh, over 150 people were killed, and 1,700, I believe, were injured, uh, billions of dollars in damage. Can you take us back to that moment when you began to understand the enormity, and how did you orient yourself with both your formal authority and the informal authority, credibility, and trust you'd built up to that point? That's a good question, and, and I hope nobody else has to go through what we did, 161 killed, you know, over 1,200 hospitalized, 7,564 houses wiped out, 11,640 cars gone, nine schools wiped out, the hospital hit. The hospital, 350-bed hospital was hit by these tornadoes and lifted and moved six inches and dropped. I mean, it's an unbelievably powerful tornado. Um, and it was this six-mile long, one-mile wide, um, just complete path of destruction uh, with nothing there. And we were concerned because over in Greenwood, Kansas, some years before they had a tornado similar to that, and everybody had moved out. So you had a town that only had 20% of its population. So from day one, what we were trying to do is not only recover, we ended up having to move two and a half times the debris of the Twin Towers out of that area, but what we wanted to do is make it a place that people wanted to come back to and stay and a place that welcomed volunteers to help. Uh, and so we did a lot of things early on and to build confidence. Uh, I had regular meetings with the clergy, uh, I had regular work in there. I was down there the first 11 days, uh, 10 of the first 11 days, uh, 75 of the first 90 days. We put a permanent building for the state, which each one of the departments down there. And we learned at the first town hall meeting that simple things really mattered. People would, all these cars were, were wiped out, and to get your insurance, the fellow would say, or the woman would say, I need the car title. And you'd say, I don't even really have a house, much less a car title. Um, and so we printed the car titles from, we did the IDs. Some of the basics built a confidence. So fast forward to August uh, of that year, August 18th when school started, 98% uh, of the kids that were there the year before came back. And today, Joplin's unemployment rate uh, is lower than the state and national average, uh, and the economy is continuing to move forward. Mm -hmm. I imagine in the immediate aftermath of a disaster like that, people aren't thinking Republican and Democrat, but over the longer-term recovery effort, did you begin to see some fault lines emerge? There, there, were, there, were, there was, I mean, at the beginning you have, um, you know, everybody all hands on deck. Um, and, and then as it gets hard, people leave and, and, and you have to, have to finish it. So we saw in the front end response, we had to do some things that were pretty dramatic. For example, um, there was at, at a time, they didn't know how many deaths there were. And the city was working a situation in which anybody called and said somebody's missing, they put them on a missing list. That list got up to 1,500 and we knew there weren't 1,500 dead. Uh, we had to take over the process. And because without being overly, overly graphic here, what was done to buildings was done to bodies. And it wasn't like you had identifiable bodies laying out there. So we had to do DNA tests on each of those. We had to interact with the families to get the DNA. I had to bring the, almost the entirety of the highway patrol down uh, to, to, to work on those situations. And some of our federal partners weren't as grounded so some of the difficult decisions I had to make on the front end were to take over things that the federal government would do. They were doing what was called the demort, which was the, the uh, mortuary operation. And they just, I didn't think, brought the level of Missouri knowledge or sensitivity to it. And I had to um, make a couple of sharper calls than, than, than otherwise might be uh, expected. Uh, and then you had 
folks got very granular about who's going to do the construction work, who is going to ha get this, who's going to get this grant and this deal, and you had to really make sure that 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 politics kept out of it because you needed a town to be uh, to built back, not just uh, one party or one politician. So that goes back to your first lessons, really, about knowing where you're going and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, if you don't know where you're going, you're not going to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we had these pillars, that, and in emergency response, I'm, I'm, you decide what the pillars of response are, and you, and you, always, you always try to stick to them. We want to keep the population there. We want to keep the place safe. It's an area with, with uh, uh, you know, we didn't want to have happen what happened after the Twin Towers where people that came down and volunteered and work got sick. So consequently, we engaged immediately with EPA and our Department of Natural Resources to have air monitors all over the place so that volunteers, we ended up having over 160,000 volunteers from all 50 states to help us uh, clean the place up. And, and, but we had, we had to make sure it was safe. Um, and so things like that, that we had learned lessons from other places were really important to, to, to immediately get, get involved because it was clear the task was too big. Government couldn't solve the problem. It was going to, government was helpful, uh, but ultimately it was a decision. And, and uh, I remember like yesterday, it was uh, the USS Missouri, is a Virginia class submarine, and the crew uh, on their leave volunteered to come to Joplin for a week. And so I went out to see him, and here's the commander and, and, and uh, 15 or 20 of the, the sailors that were there. And I said hi, and I came over, and I said, well, what do you think? And the commander leaved over and goes, man, these people in Joplin, they work really hard. Um, so the point is, the people, we wanted to make sure everybody knew you weren't working for us, you were working with us. And that concept, if, if you carry it out, so my staff and our folks, when we were down there, we didn't just look at things. If there was something to be picked up or worked on, uh, literally we were doing it ourselves with folks during the, during the thing. So I think as, as a leader, if you set a true example um, and, and live out that example, people will follow. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you maybe a, a bit more um, abstractly, but in the course of your work, were there some issues where you just couldn't build the kind of coalitions that were necessary, even when people felt that they wanted to go in the same direction? And are there some issues where you think it, it, that hyper-partisanship is, is just showing itself in... Yeah, and the issues around guns are really hard. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I successfully held off some things, but, but we passed concealed carry in Missouri. They, during my tenure, they got rid of any training requirements for that. Uh, which is, uh, quite frankly, silly and scary in a lot of ways. So that's one that 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 we ha that we had significant significant challenges with. I think in in, in K through 12 education, you've got a whole lot of folks that want to experiment. When what we really need need to do is go back to basics and make sure we've got technology in our schools. And we're paying teachers fairly. And we're making sure they got the training. Uh, some of these folks have ideas about how you can turn schools around. And then on the 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 wedge issues. Unfortunately, a state like Missouri in the heartland and in a conservative area, uh, it, it took us a while to get to where, where, where we were on some of those. Um, you know, we ended, I ended up getting banned in box. I had to do that by executive order. We ended up, uh, couldn't ever pass uh, non-discrimination policy, including uh, sexual orientation, even though I put it in each year's uh, measure. Now, we, we, we had rules in the government and all that sort of stuff, but as far as the state, we weren't able to get, get that done. I had an economic development director uh, that's gay, and I couldn't get him confirmed, things of that nature. So some of those issues were, were extremely uh, difficult uh, to work their way through and, and very vexing because you get behind doors and, and the members say, you know, I know I'm wrong, but I just can't do that. Right. Yeah. Um, and how do you explain that to your people, to the folks on your side, that uh, 
that you're, you're going to have to stay that for the time being? Um, well, you, you, uh, you listen um, and you try to, to learn more about why it's so, so important to them personally, not just, uh, and, and that's the other thing on, on issues of that nature, getting, getting to the personal stories. We were able to defeat in committee something called SGR 39, which was the equivalent of the bill in North Carolina that, that was anti-LGBT. Anti uh, that, that bill passes in North Carolina, comes to Missouri. We were able to work with a pastor and with a member uh, to get him to, to stay on our side on taxation issues. I mean, I was able to, they passed a, a, a number of tax cuts that I had to veto uh, successfully. Um, the largest of which was uh, I had to flip 18 Republican votes to, to hold it our way. And that's another area where the fiscal, uh, I'm a fiscal, uh, he said in the interview, in the opening, I was a fiscal conservative. I just only like to spend the money we got, not, not money we don't have. And since you can't print it out of state, it's not like you can, you can go take it from somebody. But um, so you had this, this, this situation which the legislature was appropriating $2 billion more than we had, but at the same time they were cutting taxes. Uh, and so those are situations where, where you just have to kind of um, uh, use the other tools that you have. And if there's a couple of fire stations in rural Missouri that look really nice now and things like that, you got to. Uh, that's the thing about being governors. There's no. It's like if you can analogize it to, to the game of pool, everything's a bank shot. There's no straight ends. So you're you're working people on other deals. It's a 360 degree field. Uh, and so in situations where we're trying to put pressure on people, oftentimes the best pressure we had was not on the issue in front of them, but was on a secondary or subsidiary issue where we knew it was more important to them and we had them in a position where perhaps they wanted something from me. Okay. <laughs> Governor, what's the role of the media right now in the hyperpartisan ecosystem that we're in? I think you look at it two ways. I mean, first of all, much of the political coverage has turned into national. And much of the thematic discussion is national. And you are at the same time seeing the death of local press, especially print press. Uh, so there's no rewards for doing good. And if you say something bad about somebody, you can guarantee you'll get ink. And that is not productive <laughs> to get things done. And I think it's, it's just horrific how much uh, the budgets have been cut from local newspapers. Uh, it's amazing how little money there is for those types of local media. So we tried to really service them and give them tips and, and give them, we denounced things in small towns or in places where it was national news, but we were doing it there with them to try to build their egos up. Because I think quite frankly, in many ways the press is beaten down uh, for lack of resources and, 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 and lack of throw weight. I mean, when I was elected governor, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the Kansas City Star and the Springfield News Leader all had daily what they call metro sections that covered everything going on in the legislature. By the time I finished, none of those papers had that. Two of the three had not gotten rid of, or one of the three had gotten rid of their Jefferson City correspondent even, and they were living off the wire or other things. So the bottom line is we tried to help them with the resources, and we found, my press secretary found, that we were providing a lot more service to them than quotes. <laughs> if they needed information or research on something to do it, we were doing that for them to help them along the way. And I think we had enough credibility with them. My press secretary was an amazingly good guy, and still is, I, I assume. I haven't seen him this week, but, um, <laughs> I mean, the point is, you serve them. You, you don't, I think that's one of the things people don't understand. They, they see press as kind of a, a different force that you're either for or against. 
when you're a governor, you're up they're doing a study on, you know, the mortality of, of, of you know, how, how, what the car wreck numbers look like this year. How many people died in car wrecks? How many didn't? What kind of accidents were there? Well, you've got that information. And rather than them filing Sunshine Law requests, so we put a system together that every Sunshine Law request that came in through all the entirety of government, for any of the press, my press secretary in my press shop was aware of that, not because we were scared of it, because if we saw a way we could help them or format their information in a much more cost-effective way, uh, we'd get it to them. So I'm just deeply concerned about the lack of resources in the press at the, at the state and local level. Um, and, you know, as far as the national press, um, it's, it's, you know, you turn on the news and it seems like they're arguing with themselves and they become such celebrities that they are um, focused on what they think more than kind of sometimes what... what what's really happening. Governor, we're privileged to have you here with us in a university uh, community and a professional school. And I wonder what your recommendations might be about the roles of universities and professional schools like this one in being able to mitigate or uh, in some way push back against the hyperpartisan world that we're in right now. How can we play a role here? in being able to have the same common purpose that you described as so important to the work you did in Missouri? Well, first of all, a legislator told me one time, I've never forgotten it. He said, hey, you know, Gov, we like to vote for good bills. You know, we really do. We like, we like to do good. We didn't run for, to do bad things, you know. So um, I think that universities, especially the strongest ones of this, can provide the basic research and amplify that research and think longer term it's extremely important to actually have the right and accurate numbers, right and accurate thoughts. I could give you time after time. I mean, one of the reasons we were able to get the autism mandate passed with ABA treatment is we had a series of studies that showed the outcomes of those kids, how different they were in their lives. And that may be a boring hearing for some people, but for folks that are touched by that, by that challenge, it's extremely real. So I think universities provide an incredible service that they don't really see. Sometimes they'll do a report or testify or do something and nothing happens immediately and they'll, and they'll think they've failed. Uh, so I would ask folks to just keep diving for the right answers. Make sure you've got the proof of it. Use the rigor of academia to show that it's correct and it, it can withstand the cross-examination and think longer term uh, about how to, how, to, how, to, how to move things forward. But with time and time again, I mean, we, had a, a, the, we passed a program called Partnership for Hope that deals with folks once they turn, after they turn 18 and have developmental disabilities. It's a huge gap. They, they, during high school, there's all kinds of people to, to invigorate them. They turn 18, they can't go to college, they're not capable of it, and all at once they start sliding down. That program was passed because of a research grant that showed a way that we could use a federal source, a state source, and a local source to match the money. Never would have figured that out ourselves. We didn't have time to figure that out. But once we saw that study, it led to a situation now in which thousands and thousands of Missouri families have an ability for their, for their family to live more independently, and, and things like that came from academia. Academia is extremely important. Okay. As you um, are active now in your post-governorship uh, uh, and in your leadership uh, in your state and, and well beyond, and as you're working with young people who are interested in public service, are there um, 
lessons that you might want to share with them in particular about preparing for a career like the one that you've had? Yeah, want to do something. Get in it because, I mean, when I first ran for state senate, my original theme, I was from a county that was south of, of St. Louis. We, we talked about our fair share. We'd been left behind in many ways. Our numbers were way behind. And we were able to build a campaign. I was able to defeat two folks that hadn't lost elections in 56 years uh, to win that race and, and move forward. So I tell people, care, figure out, and then know your district. I mean, really spend the time to understand what's out there. Uh, and under, and also deeply understand you're not going to agree with everybody all the time. So if you disagree with somebody, try not to be disagreeable about it, but make sure they know you're not with them. I think too many folks running for office say yes to everybody. And then, then, when, then when they come back around or they, uh, they win or they lose and they can't perform that, the people feel like they've lied to them. Uh, I, I'm a big believer in straight-up honesty. It's a very useful attribute if you're going to be in public service and then have a thick skin because in a democracy, if you can't take it and yell at or laughed at, you shouldn't run for office. It's part of the deal. <laughs> Governor, a final question. What gives you hope as you're interacting particularly with the next generation of those who will be public servants? I think two things. First of all, the information age is, is unbelievable. To be able to, to think back when I was in college and you had to go get to a, go to the card catalog and with the Dewey Decimal System walk up into the library and if the book was checked out, there'd be a piece of wood there. You had to carry it down to the library desk, give it to them, let them hold it, and then they'd call you in a few days and your professor would give you two days off but to be late to get the paper in. You guys don't give time off anymore. Uh, but the information age provides everybody answers to what questions they have instantaneously and ultimately good information leads to better decisions. There's that. And number two, I think young folks have a lot less discrimination, a lot less, uh, they're not trying to divide. They, they work together much better. So the things that inspire me are young folks that, that, are, that don't come burdened with the issues of race, burdened with the issues of are you a labor union or are you not, all the dividing points, they don't come to the process burdened with that. So if I was going to look at something obvious, uh, the positive in the future, it would be the information age is going to provide people data and ability to, to prove what they want to do. And number two, that younger folks have far less divisive discrimination in who they are. Thank you, Governor. Thank you. <laughs>